Lord. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> starting at verse number 16. Paul says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And highlighting that little phrase, Paul said, it's the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God. Praise God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to under, open our understanding to his word. Jesus, we love you. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you for your power that's here today. We thank you for the power of God that's here to save, to heal, to deliver, and to set free our minds and to help us walk with you. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you for what you're doing. It's exciting to be part of your kingdom and to do what you call us to do. Help us to fulfill that call in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. The word gospel is one of those uh, words that kind of gets uh, lots of meanings attached to it. Um, but the essence of the gospel, Paul defines it. You know, anytime you want a definition uh, of what a Bible word means, you try to find how the Bible defines that word. That's the best way. Um, and, and there's always, you know, there's a few tricks you can use. There's something called the law of first mention in Bible study. Um, and, and that means you go back and you find the first time that word was used. And how was it used? What was the intent? What was the context surrounding? And that do, it doesn't necessarily define it for the rest of the Bible, but it, it gives light. It shines light on it. It's called the law of first mention. And and, and gospel simply means good news. It's good news. Now, I mean, good news is good news, and bad news is bad news, and uh, often you can't have one without the other. There's the classic question, right? Do you want the good news first or the bad news first, right? You know, you, what do you want to hear first? What do you want to end on, a high note or a low note, you know? Uh, if you hear the bad news, you might be encouraged by the good. And if you hear the good, you might, it might be good enough to carry you through the bad. Whatever the case is, good news is good news. It's a good message. Glad tidings. Uh, it's the proclamation of something that's of benefit to you and to, to us. And Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So what does Paul mean? What is that? What is he trying to say? Two words really jump out there, power and salvation. This is how, you know, if you're looking for tips on how do I study the Bible, you look for keywords. Um, you know, you, you, don't, you don't try to define the or it or of, but you go to the bigger words, the subjects, the, the nouns, the adjectives that are used. And, and you go back, you can use something called a Strong's Concordance. And now it's so much easier to do it. When I first started studying the Bible before Internet was a lot more robust than it is today, I actually had to use the big old 30-pound Strong's Concordance and, and look up each individual word and then look up the Scripture. And, man, like that, that took a long time. Now 
You can, you can go to something like Blue Letter Bible. Uh, Blue Letter Bible is great online. Um, there's all kinds of little tools there that help you read the original language and what, what it meant and what those words meant. And so the word power is, is the word ability, strength, greatness, and miraculous power. It's dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. It's ability. And so it's, it's strength and it's greatness. So uh, the gospel, the good news of God, is the ability for uh, is the ability of God or the strength of God for salvation. And, and the word salvation means deliverance, deliverance from danger, from destruction, victory over an oppressor. It's, it's a very strong, word. It's a, it's a, like a burst of energy kind of word. It's that God needed to exert his strength, his ability, his might, and his power to deliver his people from danger, destruction, and oppression. So what is the good news? It is the ability of God to give victory over an oppressor. And so when you look at the word salvation, and obviously the, the next question might, might perhaps be, well, what is it that I'm being saved from? Who is the oppressor? What is the danger? What kind of destruction is in my way? I, I, I've seen uh, YouTube clips and videos and shows about, about amazing rescues, you know, a, a car sinking into a river and, and the guy sliding out on a board and and they're tied to ropes, and they're pulling the, the child or the woman out of the back of the window at the last second before the car plunges into And it's, it's the amazing rescue. It's the, wow, that was really intense rescue. It's the, it's the seeing the dad grab the child before the car comes and hits the motorbike and destroy it. It's that, it's a rescue from danger, from destruction. It's a rescue from someone who is an oppressor. I went to an interesting eye-opening seminar a few years ago before COVID hit, and it was, uh, it was about human trafficking in the Durham region. It was incredibly eye-opening, and it, it's a real thing. It is a real thing. The 401 corridor, every hotel that is on the 401 corridor is a magnet for human trafficking. This is what the police are saying, basically. And uh, it's worse in the Durham region than it is in the Niagara region, which is kind of interesting because you would think the casinos and all that would kind of promote. But the Durham region is a hotbed of human trafficking in a, in a horrible way. And, and one of the things that they say uh, for, for pulling and rescuing those, those people that are trapped in that system, in that dangerous system, is that they've, they've got to have everything lined up before they approach the individual, before they approach the, 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 the person who's caught up in that ring uh, to say, look, there's a way out. They literally have to have credit cards and, and money and clothes and a backpack and a car ready and waiting outside to take them to a safe house. And they say it takes them about seven times of being rescued before it sticks. It just, it's the nature of the game. It's the nature of the, of the whole experience. And, and when I was there, I just, I was so burdened for them, but also realizing this is, this is not, uh, this is like a, an extreme view of what goes on 
with everybody that is being saved. That God literally had to get everything prepared ahead of time. Before he approaches you to, to give you the good news, he could not give you the good news until the blood had been spilt and the way had been made and the door had been opened. If you want to think, I, I've heard people say, uh, uh, well, I found God. I'm sorry. That may, that may jive with your personal story, but if you could peel back the, the spirit world and look at what was going on behind the scenes before you ever made a step towards the Lord. That, that there were things that were being prepared. There was the exit vehicle that was there. There was the right person at the right time to tell you about Jesus. There was, there was a, a, a mother or a father or a grandmother that was in prayer over you before you ever heard the word Jesus. There was, there was things in preparation for you because God saw you before you were in trouble and prepared a way of escape for you. This is what Paul said, the good news of the gospel, it's the, the ability of God to save and deliver and exit you from your inevitable destruction. God has a plan for you. I mean, if you just want to think about the cross, the cross, right? God placed the iron ore in the mountains for it to be mined by the Romans, to make the nails that would pierce the hands of Jesus. The right thorns had to be planted in the right region to create the crown that laid on our master's head. The, the right kind of technology had to be. All of these things, these are just few. Uh, uh, my brain goes to these things, things that God had to line up. For Jesus to be crucified on Passover day, when the lamb of the Passover lamb was literally being slain for the Jewish festival, Jesus at that very moment was being crucified on the cross. You can't make that up. That can't happen by chance. That is the hand of God at work. It's the power of God unto salvation. The essence and the main message of the gospel is God is on a rescue mission. He's using his power, his might to save from destruction those who will believe and trust and respond to the call that he's placing on their lives. Colossians 1.13 says, He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sin. There, when you live apart from God, you live in what the Bible refers to as darkness. It's the absence of light. It's the absence of understanding. It's the absence of wisdom and revelation. It's the, it's the place where wrong is called right and right is called wrong. It's a, it's a place of confusion. It's, it, to live outside of the kingdom of God is to go back to Genesis 1 where the Bible says darkness hovered over the face of the deep. Darkness, confusion, chaos was on the face of the deep. But the Spirit of the Lord moved upon the face of the waters. And God, His first thing was, let there be light. Let there be light. Not let there be uh, a creation. Not let there be land or animals or man or woman. But let there be light. There's got to be light 
to be able to do the rest of what God wants to do. So the first thing God does in a person's light is he turns on the light. That's what Paul said. He rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. How does he do that? He turns on the light. And once he turns on the light, it gives you the power to be transferred from the kingdom of, 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 of darkness and the devil and the world to the kingdom of Jesus who purchased us with his blood. He purchased our freedom. God always starts with the end in mind. There's hundreds of examples of it in the scripture. Adam and Eve had a relationship with God, and that relationship was severed. It was, it was, it was killed by their decision, their choice. And so God gave them a promise. They started with darkness, and God gave them a promise of life. Cain killed Abel, but God gave Eve Seth. Sarai, Abraham's wife, was barren in one chapter, but in the next chapter, God promised to, to make Abraham a great nation and able to deliver a child through his aged wife's closed-up womb. The Bible says in Genesis 11.30 that Sarah, Sarai was barren. She had no child. There was something physically wrong with her ability to produce a child, yet God was able to overcome that very obstacle. And the Bible says in verse 2 that I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee. I will make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. The good news of the gospel is that God rescues you, but not just rescues you for your own sake or your own purpose. He rescues you so that you can be an instrument to rescue others. He rescues you. He blesses you so you can be a blessing. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren. When she married Isaac, Abraham's son. And Isaac prayed and she had twins, Jacob and Esau. Rachel was barren. This was later on, another key moment in scripture where a, a, a key person in the line of Jesus Christ and the line of the Messiah was unable to have a child. Rachel, who was Jacob's wife, was barren. Isn't it interesting? Sarah was barren and she gave birth to Isaac. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren. She gave birth to Jacob. Jacob's wife, Rachel, was barren. Are, you, are we seeing a pattern here that God is allowing even the closed doors to be opened time and time and time again to reveal that there's no barrier that he cannot get through to accomplish his plan? Joseph, Jacob's son, has a dream that God was going to do something with his life. His brothers, jealous of his dream and of his purpose and of his plan, God's plan in his life, sells him into slavery, thinking they have rid themselves of the dreamer. But this is where God steps in. What man meant for evil, God used it as the stepping stones to get Joseph where he wanted him to be so that his plan through Joseph's life could be fulfilled. Moses' confidence dies. He runs away from Egypt. He was, a, he was born into Egyptian wealth even though he was a Jew. He was miraculously saved by his mother who put him in the bulrushes and allowed the daughter of Pharaoh to find him. And he was raised as an Egyptian even though he remembered his heritage. He remembered his, interestingly enough, the Bible says that Moses was raised by his mother until five years of age, until he was weaned, which is around five years during that time. In five years, Jochebed instilled enough God into him 
that it carried him until he was in his 40s. Because he leaves Egypt when he was in his 40s. He spends another 40 years in the wilderness. And God finds him at the age of 80-something years old. On the back, don't, I'm sorry, for those of you that I'm busting your Prince of Egypt movie, sorry. (laughs) Moses wasn't the handsome, robust young man when he came back. He was an aged, I'm sorry, he was, he was wise. He was wise. He was 80-something years old. He had wisdom in his hair <laughs> and in his beard. He was well, he was well wise, well wise. He was, but he was used of God. He loses his confidence. He runs from Egypt. And at this point, it's where God calls him back 40 years later. You think, I mean, the chapter's over, right? It was over at 40-something when he left. And surely Moses thought, you know, it's been 40 years, God. I mean, come on. Like, 40 years for us is like, like that's a lifetime. And God says, that's okay. I'm not, I can use an 85-year-old man. I can call you for the first time at 80. Uh, I, I, can, I can put a calling on you. There's no age barrier to the call of God. On your life. You can be eight. You can be five. You can be 85. And God can call you into his kingdom and into his service. The Bible records that it was at the death of Moses. You know, when Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land for various reasons. But God turns his attention to Joshua and says, Joshua, cross over. Go across. I'll be with you. And so it was at the death of Moses that the people crossed into the promised land. Just when it seems like the book is closing, God is able somehow to start the next chapter. Just when you feel like it's all over and it's finished and it's ended, God is able to use that, that death of something to give birth to something. God has woven that even into the pattern of life. Because the Bible talks about how when a seed goes into the ground, it cannot produce anything until it first dies. Science teaches us that that is exactly what happens to a seed. It rots, it decays, the outer shell uh, breaks open, water gets in, and the germ touches. The water touches the germ of that seed. And from the death of the shell and the the decay of the outer shell of that seed comes life that produces seed after seed after seed after seed. And this is the pattern of God. It's the gospel, the good news that gives power and ability to rescue and save and bring new life. The book of Ruth starts with famine and death. It begins with the death of Naomi's husband. It begins with the death of Naomi's son. And then the death of Naomi's next son. And Naomi is left alone in a land that is foreign to her. She's left in the land of Moab. But it's here that God starts the story of Ruth. It, it starts with the death of Elimelech and Malon and Chilion. But then it begins with the story of a woman named Ruth. Remarkable woman who was not a Jew, but she felt the call of God. And she followed Naomi back, even though Naomi said, Ruth, turn and go back home. There's nothing for you in Israel. They won't like you there. You won't be accepted here. You're supposed to be, but I know you won't be. So just go home. And Ruth says, sorry, Mom, but I'm going to 
to go where you go. I'm going to live where you live. I'm going to die where you die. I'm going to worship the God that you worship. I'm going to, your people are going to be my people. Your God is my God. Where you go, I'll go, and I'll be buried by your side. But don't entreat me to leave you again. I'm sticking with you. And it's here that the determination of a young Moabite woman, she weaves herself into the line of Jesus Christ. Because it was Ruth's great determination to be part of God's people that allowed her to be the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus Christ himself. The story of the prophet Samuel started with Hannah, a woman who was barren and could not have a child. But she prayed and God heard her prayer and gave her a child. The story of John the Baptist starts again with a woman by the name of Elizabeth, who you guessed it, was barren. And not only barren, she was old, too old to have children. And God says, I'm going to give you a son. And her, uh, his dad was like, I, I, are you sure? And God says, you know what, just because you doubted me, you're not going to speak until the boy is born. And when the boy was born, the first words out of his mouth was, his name is John. I'm going to give him his identity because I spoke doubt in the beginning, but I'm going to speak life in the end because God is able to open a door that is closed. I'm here to tell you this morning, it doesn't matter where you feel like your story has ended. It doesn't matter where you feel like there is a period God is able to take the period and make it a new paragraph. He's able to take it and continue the story. If the door has shut, God's able to reopen that door. There is no, no door that shuts in your life that God isn't able to readjust. He's not able to turn you around and find a different door for you to go through. Where your story ends is often where God begins. God allows us to come to the end of ourselves so he can make something new in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Do you know the wonderful thing about God is he loves to outdo himself. He does. He loves to outdo himself. For years, we went through, our, how many stories have I told of women who were barren and old giving birth to children? The Bible also tells us that God likes to do new things. He likes to do new things. So we turn the pages of the Old Testament and we come over to the new. And God begins to do a new thing. He visits a woman by the name of Mary. You know, before God had gone through doors that were shut. Now he visits a woman who is not married to a man and says, you are going to have a child. I'm not able to only open doors that are closed. I'm able to open doors that don't exist. Because Mary said, how shall this thing be? How is it possible? I am going to have a child, Lord. And God said, there is nothing that is too hard. Is anything too hard? Nothing shall be impossible with God. The Holy Ghost is going to overshadow you, Mary. And that thing that is born of you will be called the Son of God. God opened a door that did not exist. I'm here to tell you, there is nothing that is too hard for God. God can open doors that are closed. And He can make a door in a wall that says there's no way in. God can make the inroad. Why was God so determined to make an inroad into the human existence. We read it in Genesis 3. 
God wanted to reverse something that man had caused. In Genesis 3.16, the Lord says to the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. God begins to outline for her, Eve and Adam, these are the consequences of your choices. You've chosen this road. Now I'm going to allow you to know what are the curses. And by curse, it's not the same as you might think of a, uh, of a witch, you know, casting a spell or doing something malicious or uh, an evil. This the uh, curse biblically is basically just the, the it's, it's another word for consequence. It's the results of a choice that is negative. A bad choice results in bad consequences. If you're going to speed, you're running the risk of a ticket. If you're going to play on your phone while you drive, you're running the risk of an accident. The, the accident, uh, rather the collision, is a, is a curse of the distracted driving. It's not anybody doing it to you, but it's an inevitable thing that's going to happen, a consequence or a curse that's going to come that's going to cost you or somebody else. And so the Lord said, this is what's going to happen, Eve. I'm going to multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you will bring forth children. And all the mothers in the room said, Amen. Your desire shall be for your husband, the Lord says, but he shall rule over you. God outlines there, if we were doing a marriage seminar, we would stick with that, and there'd be a whole lot to talk about right there. That the, the wife would desire her husband. She would desire something from him, but he would be out and distracted and working, and he would be ruling because she would try to usurp and, 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 and flip-flop. There'd be this dynamic between the husband and the wife, this conflict that goes back and forth. God called it from the garden. It's a result of the fall. And Adam said, and, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life and all the gardeners in the room said amen because you can grow a weed far easier than you can grow a tomato plant. If you are successful enough to grow the tomato plant, the rats and the squirrels come and take one little bite out of your tomato and ruin the whole thing. And, and you know, I'd be okay if they took a tomato off the vine and put it in their fridge and just ate a little bit from it. No, they take a little bite out of every tomato on my plant and ruin the whole thing. I'm not bitter. And then when the rats and the, the squirrels don't get at them, the fungus does. And, and it, you know, just you just pray for no fungus and no rats and no squirrels. Because out of the ground, it's hard to scrape what you want out of the ground. It, to this day, it's, it's easier to grow a weed than it is to grow a plant you desire. It's part of the curse. And he said this in verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. It will produce what you don't want. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. You will need the plants that are in the field, but they will be hard to come by. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. These are the curses. On, on man. The curse of the woman is sorrow in childbearing. And what did God do when in response to the curse of sin, he sought to reverse every curse given 
in Genesis 3. Because through the curse of the pain of childbearing came the Messiah. It was in pain that a woman was going to give birth to her child and rear her child. But it was through the process of birthing a child that God became a man and manifested himself in the flesh and became one of us. It was through the pain of childbearing that Mary and Joseph found themselves on the way to Bethlehem and miraculously to fulfill prophecy. They were living in Nazareth, but by way of prophecy, God aligned the taxing and the census to align perfectly with Mary's due date. That, that, that couldn't have happened. I mean, you can schedule a C-section, and the baby can come early today, right? It happened to my, my, my brother-in-law's wife. Uh, she scheduled a C-section, and the baby came a month early, and they had to rush her in and do it all then. So you can plan and plan, but man, when, when, when it starts, it starts. And there's no stopping it. it it's time. And God aligned it for, for Mary to be giving birth in a crowded place where she literally had to give birth in the stalls next to animals. But it was in this painful moment that God entered the world as a man and became one of us. I really hate that old song, what if God was one of us? God was one of us. God was one of us. He was. He felt everything you feel. He went through things that you, he understands the point of your pain because he experienced it on the same level that you experienced it. The mother of God's chosen people had sorrow in her womb, Sarah, and God opened uh, Sarah's the, the womb of Sarah's life to give birth to a promised child. And then God opens the door of Elizabeth's womb and allows her to give birth to John, the one who would pre pre precede the Messiah and give way for Jesus. And then God opens the closed door of Mary's womb and says, you're going to give birth to a child without having known a man. She is, you're going to have a son and you're going to call his name Jesus. It was from the painful curse of childbearing that the Savior of the world was born. And so it was that God began to reverse the curse. And then we turn to the next one. The Bible says that cursed was the ground for the sake of man. For the sake of man. For from the ground, instead of the things he desired from it, thorns and thistles would grow from the from the ground. It would be easy to produce something that was unwanted. Uh, thorns and thistles it should bring forth for you, and by the sweat of your face you would eat bread. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus was being crucified, the Bible says that the Roman soldiers, by chance, reached over to a thorn bush and took a thorn bush and made a mockery crown out of thorns and thistles, and placed that crown of thorns on his head. And the Bible says they took a reed and they beat the crown into his head to not just set it nicely, but to make sure it was firmly in place. And took the same reed and put it in his hands. And it was only a few hours before that Jesus had been in the Garden of Gethsemane praying and praying and praying until the Bible says that he sweat great drops of blood. What was 
going on here, Jesus was taking on himself the worst of the curse so he could reverse the curse. Uh, he was reversing the curse. He was allowing the thorns and the thistles uh, to penetrate his skull, his brain, his head. Uh, he was allowing the pressure and the weight of sin to rest so heavily on him that medical science tells us that the, 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 the heart literally ruptured uh, and that's why he began to sweat great drops of blood. Uh, medical science would tell us today that Jesus did not die from the wounds inflicted uh, on his hands and his feet. Uh, but his death actually began many hours before while he was in the garden praying, not my will, but thine be done. I don't believe it was the cross that crucified Jesus uh, because Jesus said, I'm going to lay down my life and no one can take it from me. I'm the one that has authority over my life. Jesus laid his life down in the garden when he prayed, thy will be done, not mine. I'm going to the cross to fulfill prophecy, but I'm going to take the sweat of my brow and I'm going to scrape out of the ground of this earth a church. I'm going to give birth to a church with my own blood and with my own sacrifice. And it was the seed that fell in the garden of Gethsemane. Is it interesting? Jesus is the seed that brings life and he was planted in the garden. His death died in a garden just like a seed dies in the ground of a garden and brings new life. And then he was taken and nailed to a tree and they put a robe on him and said, you're going to be a king. And he was enthroned on the cross. And so what did Jesus do? He took the thorns for us. Remember I mentioned the, the law of first mention if you're studying the Bible. The law of first mention. Oftentimes when you look up the word thorns, the first mention and the first reference to it is, well, the consequence of sin, first of all. But the next few references are important because you get over into Isaiah. And this was this is a prophet that came many years after Israel was established as a nation. They were supposed to be living righteously and they were supposed to be the, the garden of the earth. They were supposed to be the new Eden. Israel was supposed to be the place of prosperity and, and no wild animals that would, would harm people. And they would, to civilize the area and to make it well and to, the, the desert was to blossom as a rose. This is what God intended for the nation. But because they continuously fell into sin and continuously went after the other nations the way we see the world doing it over here. We see the, the world worshiping this God over here. We're going to go over there and we're going to do like they do. And God said, because of that, you can't live in the world and be under my blessing. It's just not compatible. So Israel, as a result of your choice to worship other gods, the thorns and the thistles are going to come and they're going to grow up again. In your land of prosperity, the thorns represented the absence of God's presence. They represented the backslidden state of a nation that was supposed to be living for God. But thorns, as Jesus would later describe them, also represent the cares of life, the pressures of life, the duties of life. Because in Matthew 13, 22, Jesus said that, that he was talking about the way the gospel is preached. And sometimes when the gospel is preached into somebody's life, the cares of life grow up around the gospel. And they choke out the word. And he used the illustration of a farmer planting a field. And sometimes he plants some, some seed here. But thorns and thistles grow up and rob the soil of its nutrients, choking the plant. 
And Jesus likened those thorns to the cares of life. And isn't it interesting? Jesus took the thorns not on his body. He did not take the thorns in his hands or his feet, but he took the thorns on his head. And where is it that the battle of the mind is and the the cares of life fight us the hardest? It's right here between our ears. It's the mind. It's the head. And what Jesus was telling us when he allowed the thorns to be beaten into his was saying, I'm doing this so you don't have to let the thorns be beat into yours. You don't have to let the pressures and the cares of this life be your crown of thorns. I'll take the crown of thorns. You take the crown of life. I'll take the crown of pressure and anxiety and depression and and, and things weighing and crushing the mind and and inflicting the mind, mental health and, and all kinds of things. I'll take that so that when you come into my presence, you can lift the crown of thorns off your head by raising your hands and you can begin to praise and the Bible says to cast your cares on the Lord what is casting my cares practice for? It's taking off my crown of thorns and giving it to him so that someday when I get into the presence of God I'm so used to taking off the cares I'm going to take off my crown and throw it at his feet I'm so used to taking off the crown of cares I'm going to take off that crown that he gives me as a reward of my good faithful service and cast on his feet say Lord I can't wear the crown in your presence because you all my life long I cast that crown of thorns back onto you you told me in first Peter to cast to humble myself therefore under the mighty hand of God that he would exalt you in due time casting your care on him casting the anxiety casting the pressure casting the worry casting the fear casting the anxiety for tomorrow onto you because he cares for you. Now, that's a whole other lesson in and of itself. That doesn't mean that you don't do the responsible thing and get up and go to work. It doesn't mean that. But but there is a balance between being responsible and being anxious. There's There's a difference between worrying about what the future holds And dealing with the problems of today. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, but deal with the problems that are in your lap today. Sufficient is the the trouble thereof. There's enough trouble in today to not worry about tomorrow. And when the pressures of tomorrow come, your response to that is casting it on the Lord. And I used to think, okay, well, so if I cast it on God in the morning, I should be good all day long. But it's, it's, it's very likely that that care will, will resettle itself back on my mind. My response to that again is pick it off my head and cast it back on the Lord. And all, if I have to do that 20 times in a day, that's, I'm, I'm doing what God told me to do. God, I'm going to cast this care on you. I'm going to learn the tools and the tricks of the mind to take the anxious thoughts and put them back into your hands. He took the crown of thorns for me. He took the sweat for me. So I don't have to labor to get in to the kingdom of God. You cannot live righteously enough to be in the kingdom. I like I was having a conversation with someone this week and they said something that really resonated with me and it was that we it, it's it's kind of silly for church people to call people in the world sinners because we're all sinners. We've all had sin in our life. We've all messed up and it's it's kind of uh, 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 
drawing a, an unnecessary line in the sand to look out of the church doors and say, those sinners out there. That's like Jesus saying, you look at the speck in their eye when you got a log in your own, honey. you got to take the log out of your own eye. you got to recognize your own weaknesses and inabilities and, 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 and pitfalls that you're, you're daily in need of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. What did Paul say? It's the good news is the power of God to save you every day. And then finally, the curse, the last curse, was that you were going to return to the dust. Death was going to be your final song. Jesus said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and hell. I have defeated the last enemy of man. It's the good news of the gospel. You can have that. You can be baptized in Jesus' name, have your sins washed away. You can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of God can powerfully penetrate your life and infuse you with strength for your journey and, and mark you and seal you and, and bring you into, into light and into his revelation. But it's a daily exercise. That's why Paul said, i got to put on the helmet of salvation. i got to take off the crown of thorns and put on the helmet of salvation to protect my mind. That salvation protects my mind. Let's stand this morning. We need him this morning. I need to be saved every day. I need to be saved and resaved and saved again because I'm not perfect and I mess up and I, make my, and I make mistakes, but I need him every day. I've got to revisit my place of dedication and prayer and consecration to the Lord. I've got to do that every day because God wants to empower and infuse my life to live for him.